0: A little bit about myself, I have four daughters, I'm married to my wife Tamara, I have four daughters, live in Bend, Oregon, uh, that's where my wife was from. My dad was in the Navy growing up, so I was all over the place. My oldest turned 16 in a month, uh, and is going to be driving, and then I have 14, 12, and about to turn 9. Um, any of you that have daughters that are, that are older than that, feel free to come give me advice afterwards, I'm, uh, I'm listening. Uh, and... And my journey kind of begins with my dad. My dad was an, an immigrant from the Netherlands, so he was born in '44 during Nazi-occupied Holland. So I grew up with stories hearing about my grandfather, uh, who was hiding underneath the floorboards when my grandma was pregnant with my dad, would have to get on a bike and ride 20 miles uh, to get food, to forage for food, because this is at the end of the war in '44, and so things were scarce. Uh, My my dad's family wasn't Jewish, but by then they were taking all the able-bodied men to factories. And so out of that context and, you know, the the stories of eating tulip bulbs for food and and all of that, they ended up immigrating to the United States. Twenty dollars in my grandfather's pocket, ended up out in Pasadena. Uh, My dad met my mom years later. It's now, I'm eight years old, same, same age my dad was. And he comes home on a, on a Tuesday and tells my sister and I, we were in the Bay Area, uh, San Jose, and he says, we're going to be having some people come stay with us this weekend. And I don't really know what it meant. I moved all my stuff out of my room, though. And that Saturday, a family of five came that were from Cambodia, husband, wife, and a baby, and then a brother and sister. So they weren't really one family. And they came and stayed with us, didn't speak any English, heads were shaved from the refugee camp. And the father took the whole day to write a letter to my dad using a dictionary uh, about boys with guns and people eating people. And it was kind of the beginning of a long period for me where I watched my parents help them get, get naturalized, learn how to drive, get jobs. Uh, I would sometimes on Saturdays go to Cambodian weddings of the community that was in the Bay Area. And I think it awoke something in me about the other person or about others in general, that there was empathy there, at least a little bit. Um, studies show that boys don't get empathy until about age 21. It's why we break a lot of things in high school, you know, mailbox baseball and vandalism and all that. Um, but when I became a Christian at age 22 it was, and started reading the scriptures, it was, it was that part of my story that just made the, the poor, the vulnerable, the, the oppressed, kind of the orphan widow, all of those justice passages in scripture just jump out. And so I planted a church where I I hoped we could have those conversations as an integrated whole rather than what often happens as we talk about the gospel, like kind of a a very thin version of the gospel. Righteousness is then secondary and justice is tertiary at best. And I wanted to try and bring that back in because the person of Jesus represented all those things, right? So organically it should be holistic. Out of that came the Justice Conference and some of the things we were doing. What I didn't really see coming was the story of race in in my own life and and how to begin to navigate this through the Justice Conference, the friends that I was able to develop, and the things that I had to go through to really learn what race um, means within my faith journey. And so this morning, we're gonna really talk only about two things. Uh, First service, I think it was 20 things, Uh, but for you guys, it's just two, so you should be glad. But we're really going to talk about two things, and it's just going to be why race belongs in our gospel conversation, and then secondly, um, because of that, it then matters in my faith story. Race is a part of my faith story. And so, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump right into this. Again, two things, that race matters in our gospel conversation, and that because of that, it's essential to my discipleship or my faith story. So, Father, we do commit this morning to you. Um, We all come from different places. We're coming in 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 different emotional spaces as well. But the body of Christ, your Holy Spirit, are the things that unite all of us, that somehow we might fight through all of our unique particularities uh, and find a centering point with your grace, with your holiness, with your love for us, and that we might grow and learn in that. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, To him be the glory now and forever. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of uh, history and architecture, because I just, I like that kind of stuff. Um, I uh, was in Europe recently and was kind of fascinated by the old cathedrals. And so these these big kind of gothic cathedrals have what's called the flying buttresses. Anyone remember this from like elementary school? The flying buttresses, and you'd make a bunch of jokes about it and, and things like that. But it's these... This is Notre Dame here in Paris, but these massive things that come in, and what they're really coming in and doing is holding up the upper part of these, these old buildings that go back, some of them, seven, 800 years, so that you could go higher with it and also include uh, a lot of stained glass. Now, what was the reason for that? Uh, the reason for that was the theology of the church wanting to come into that space and, and really celebrate the transcendence of God that the light would light up that holy place. Back then, it was all in Latin, and you'd you'd do the Eucharist, and this whole mass was something to help get you in touch with the glory of God, the transcendence of God, the otherness of God. And so the light and the stained glass did that, as well as the acoustics. And so uh, I was here, which is Westminster Abbey. Uh, Westminster Abbey, if you picture right where that altar is, is where... Uh, queen Elizabeth, uh, the current queen, was coronated, where William and Kate, did I get that right? It's William and Kate, um, got married, and they walk in, and it's in this cathedral. So I walked in, and there was an organ, con- uh, Oregon. Uh, Oregon. I'm from Oregon, this is an organ <laughs> concert going on, and uh, I, I tend to break rules, it feels a little bit bad when you break rules in a church, um, but I, you know, there, I did record a little bit of, of the organ. Oregon concert Um, but so just play a little bit of that and just listen to what it does The high church that, that we're being lifted up. Now, I think that's actually the tendency we have with most everything, that we tend to gravitate toward the spiritual side of our relationship with God rather than the material side. We, we tend to look at the heavens, if you will, and, and think of, of God, and then look at the earth or the soil or the plants and, and then engage with God. We, we tend to go outside with it and big. Uh, I think we do that with our own faith. We we don't come to the messy parts of life that that much. Um, God is somehow transcending that. So the interesting thing, when I walked outside of Westminster Abbey, I saw what you always see on these big cathedrals. You see stone sculptures uh, of saints, of people telling biblical stories. This is a pre-literate culture for most of these. Uh, time periods, so they would tell the parables by kind of doing the statues and artwork that way. These ones caught my eye, though, for a little bit of a difference. Right underneath this is the doorway that goes into Westminster Abbey, so the the same weddings, the same coronations I was just talking about, and above that very important door, this didn't quite look the same way the rest of them did um, in Europe, and so I went and read a little bit about it, and it's actually a row of of martyrs of the Christian faith. And so you might recognize right there Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, And then next to him, Oscar Romero, that was the the priest from El Salvador, a a lot in fighting corruption and, and what's called liberation theology. And then the one to the far right, anyone have an idea who that is? Do you have good enough eyes? It's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor that was killed um, at a concentration camp, I think Flossenburg concentration camp, literally a week before that, that camp was liberated by the Allies during World War II. And I thought this was really interesting that you would have these social justice or just justice icons, these martyrs that were caring about the, the people, the, the more material side of life, coming right outside of that big cathedral. And as I was reflecting on that, went a little bit further, and you had these Jubilee markers in the ground, totally disconnected, but it got me thinking. Jubilee meaning uh, the parks and those sidewalks were put in during Queen Elizabeth's Jubilee year, okay? But there's another Jubilee. It's, it's the biblical Jubilee. And Jubilee was this idea that goes back and that every 50th year you were supposed to have this Jubilee year. I think we've got a verse from Leviticus. It says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, all of them. It shall be a Jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your own family, property, and to your own clan. Um, So the idea here is, if you had had to sell your land because your family was starving, you'd get your ancestral land back. If you had yourself in a a position as a slave or in debt bondage that way, you were to be freed, that everything was kind of freed up. And I started thinking, it really is the combination of both that happens with Jubilee. The God who is high, the God of justice, the Creator God, who, who, who built and designed a world to be good, also, wants in that very messy reality to continue to try and bring goodness back out of it. It's the spiritual and the material, it's the transcendence of God and then the imminence of God, right? Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us, that he's born to, uh, illegitimately, to a Jewish couple that are peasants in a a stable with animals around and gets visited first by the shepherds, that, that God is also with us in the very gritty, messy parts of reality. And that this is really what we're talking about, that the good news, the gospel, okay, this light that Jesus came into the world to bring is a very dynamic, robust light, and it means more than just my personal salvation. So let's turn to 2 uh, Colossians. I'm sorry, Second Corinthians. It's a trick. There's only one Colossians. I uh, heard of a pastor recently that told the church he wanted them to read Mark chapter 26 because they were going to discuss it the next week. And then when everybody came back the next week, he asked him, so how many of you read Mark chapter 26? And about half the hands went up and he looked at him and he says, there's no, there's not 26 chapters in Mark, um, which would be a really interesting thing to do to a congregation. I haven't done it yet, but I might, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, So let's read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it's on the screen for you. Um, And so, verse 16, or are we beginning in verse 17 up here? Um, Therefore, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. That's a famous verse. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and now has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. And therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So God is reconciling the world to himself. Now, we would be talking about the social gospel if we just put a period there. God is reconciling the world to himself, period be the social gospel, if we say God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, we have what we would call the whole gospel. This is the plan of God, the mission of God. Turn over to Colossians with me. Colossians chapter 1. This isn't going to be on the screen, so I'm just going to read. But Colossians chapter 1, we see something uh, similar. It begins talking about how all things in creation, uh, whether on earth, visible, and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's us, that's Antioch and Bend. It's churches in Africa and Asia, Jesus is the head of that one church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, there we go again, through Christ, to reconcile to himself, back to God, all things. All things. Not just the best parts of you, but the darker parts of you too, the parts that have been hanging with you since childhood, the parts you don't know what to do with. God is here reconciling through Christ all of me, all of you. And he's not just here to reconcile the pretty people in this church or the pretty people in Christianity, uh, that God is here to reconcile all of it back to himself through Christ. It's his. He cares about all of it. That's why we get in this interesting position when we feel really self-confident in our election. We begin to think, well, I'm the part God wants to reconcile. And we should never really do like the people in Jesus' day did where they, they kind of lopped off the Samaritans. They're not the chosen ones. And Jesus was like, think bigger than that. God loved the world and has now sent me dream of, hope for, go preach for that all people would come into this. That you would pray for your enemies and love your enemies as well, that they might even come to enjoy the reconciliation of God in Christ. You know what uh, an enemy is to you if you're a Christian? All enemies to us as Christians should be potential future friends. How can we pray for and love our enemy if we're not in some way envisioning that that they're going to come one day be our friend. All enemies, in some small way, are people that we're hoping are going to be our future friends. So God is reconciling all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his uh, blood, that's the blood of Christ, shed on the cross. What do we make of this? Well, let me give you a a little story of what's going on in Jerusalem when Jesus dies to try and help us get this. Uh, This is kind of getting at the answer... Why does race belong in our gospel conversation? Uh, when Jesus died, Jesus goes to the cross. Remember, he was the lamb of God. He's going there to be slain. He even broke the bread and, and passed the cup and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood um, that, that you drink it and will be forgiven. Jesus knows that he's operating as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and that, that his sacrifice is going to wash us or make us new. That's what baptism Pictures, is it not? So Jesus goes to the cross and he dies for the forgiveness of our sins. It's a lot like the altar in the temple. When you walked into the temple back in those days, the temple mound is still there. It's where the, the dome of the rock is. But you would come in and you would run into the altar. And the altar is where you brought your sacrifice. Whether it be pigeons or a lamb without defect. In, in other words, prefacing what was coming with Christ, right? Right? And the blood that would be shed there on that altar in some ways made you aware of and then cleansed or atoned for your sin so that you could go further into the temple to the actual temple itself, which was broken into two parts. You had uh, the holy place and then a six-inch thick veil and then you had the most holy place, what we'd call the holy of holies, right? Right. And the Spirit of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And nobody could come in there except the high priest on pain of death once a year, right? So God is separated because even with the, uh, the blood from those animals, were are not 100% cleansed or, or pure. And what does impurity or unrighteousness have with righteousness? You can't mix two paints together, right? It ends up contaminating the one. So God has this veil there separating us from himself. So when Jesus dies, follow me now. It's it's this this Friday and it's A lot going on that day and it is dramatic and the city is crowded Pontius Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem he lived at the coast he was only in Jerusalem because the holiday and that that city would swell with potential people that could rebel and now one of these kind of would-be leaders is going to be punished and, and Jesus goes to the cross and he dies and scripture tells us at the moment of his death The one that in Colossians here, it says all of creation was made through. Creation kills its creator. Um, Creation groans at that moment. And so there's lightning, there's thunder, things are chaotic. On the Temple Mount, you have that altar, right? And just like C.S. Lewis had it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the table, the slab, the stone table that Aslan was killed on, remember when he was killed, it was cracked because never again would there need to be a sacrifice. So this altar on the temple mound cracked, right? Because Jesus' death was sufficient once and for all. Never again we're going to need a a sacrifice. True or false? Somebody over here. You guys are doing a lot better than the first service. They all got it wrong. They all said true, and I said, I'm I'm actually setting you up here. and then they said true again, and I said, I just said I was setting you up. <laughs> it's, it's false. C.S. Lewis had it wrong. Um, nothing happened to the altar. It, it just sat there. So if you were there with your camera out, you were ready to Instagram it, nothing happened. But what did happen? The six-inch thick barrier between us and God was ripped from top bottom, symbolizing that God himself has now reconciled us back to himself. Does that make sense? So here's the part that's going to be really hard and might sound like heresy. And if you think it's heresy, uh, I get on a plane today. Bob will be here in the morning. Um, No, but here's the really hard part. Listen to me now. The cross of Jesus Christ is not the gospel, It's a part of the gospel. It was the means by which God accomplished the reconciliation. The transaction that happened so that we could be restored into a right relationship with God. This device was a tool, the cross, that God used to accomplish his purpose or his end, which was reconciliation, right? If the cross was the gospel, what gets left out? If if all you have is Good Friday, what are you missing? Yeah, the good news has to include the resurrection and the promise of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this alone, but the Holy Spirit's going to come. And then the ascension into heaven that says, I have all authority so I can help be with you to make sure that when you ask things in my name, that you can go and do this. And the commission to go and be the hands and the feet of Christ, we are not just recipients of grace, we're agents of grace in this world, right? So the good news, the gospel, cannot just be the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That is an essential, essential part that cannot be taken out. But the whole gospel is that God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ, and that we now are pulled into this. We are reconciled into a reconciling family. Like, if you were born into the family that, that are diehard Eagles fans, guess what you're not going to be? not going to be a Cowboys fan, right? We are reconciled into a reconciling family. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Race is a part of our gospel conversation. Why? The good news of Jesus Christ is a light in the room. Jesus came and says, I am the light of the world. Uh, Don't hide your light under a bushel. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. When you have a light in the room, we could shut all these lights down and just put one flashlight here. Light touches everything in the room. And the good news of Jesus Christ certainly touches the greatest historic injustice that we've ever experienced in the last 500 years how could you say there's this thing called race and the history of race and slavery and colonialism and exploitation and rape but that somehow is over there it really actually doesn't touch the gospel what you've got then is you've got a formula for your own individualistic salvation you don't have Jubilee You don't have the ram's horn blowing on that 50th year on the Day of Atonement, initiating or inaugurating this idea that somehow God actually cares about the stuff, the dirt, the very dirt that he used to fashion us and to breathe life into our nostrils, correct? So why talk about race? Because race belongs in our justice conversation. Um, Genesis 4-9, the Lord says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? In somehow, some way, that phrase is a theme that runs all throughout the dysfunction of humankind that we see in Scripture. All injustice, all sin, all of the things that God sends prophets to address and Jesus to come ultimately reconcile is that we naturally don't want to take responsibility for the other or what is happening with the other. Um, Mother Teresa said this, if we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. One of the greatest challenges the church of this day has to overcome, I was talking about it with a policeman uh, after the first service and we both agreed on this. This is going to blow your mind it's so theological. We have to overcome the algorithms that run Facebook. Facebook, when you click things, it knows that you like it. When you hover on something, believe it or not, it actually knows that you pause there. And then it's gonna show you more of that. And the more you see it, the more you kind of pause or click on it, and the more that happens, it shows you more. So ultimately over time, what drives the engines of Facebook are going to lead all of us to our most extreme self this whole thing is slowly leading you to a version of your most extreme self during the election I would talk to people and they'd be like I don't just think this way tons of people think this way It's all over my feed and I said well come come show me and they show me their feed and I'm like you've got eight different news outlets saying the exact same thing that's not a diversity of opinion (laughs) like that is one opinion that is that is reflecting back to you the echo chamber that you've created for yourself. And objectification and distance is where all injustice lives. Let's walk it through with with the Nazis. First thing, take away citizenship. Nuremberg Laws from the Jews. You're not a citizen. Um, Then take away your ability, your dignity. You can't even have... Uh, children or sex with with Jewish people and then take away their their property Kristallnacht and the breaking of the businesses and then remove them from your presence and you get the ghettos and you and you and then you you take their clothing dignity ever since Adam and Eve Um, and 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 then you and then you finally because there's so much distance created can treat them as they're less than human what actually moves justice forward Gary Haugen trafficking these kinds of things is when something comes up close and we feel it and empathy is aroused and we go, man, I can see, I can understand, I can taste, I can touch what life would be like if I'm in that person's position. And man, that's pretty, it's pretty significant. Um, all of justice is carried forward by empathy. Wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. We're, uh, there's a demon in your clock here. I've never done an exorcism on a clock, but this one is obviously legion. Um, uh, It's a part of the gospel. Let me just say briefly here, um, we have to be willing to understand corporate reality with regard to race. That this is racism. uh, My privilege in society because of the color of my skin that a a taxi cab in New York City will stop for me after driving right past somebody else. Uh, It doesn't mean that life is easy for me. It doesn't mean um, that I don't have to work hard. It just means that there is a prejudice or a latent bias that plays itself out in this society, and that if I don't understand that, then I can't really understand your experience or the other person's experience, and I can't separate myself from that and say I didn't do it. Because just like Jesus' death was for all of us, we all have sinned. We take something like a historic injustice like this and say, God, I'm so tangled up in this. My, my ancestors are so tangled up in this. My family, the, the ways I don't even know, the blind spots I, I don't even see, but, but it's a mess. God, would you forgive us? Would you heal our land? This is what Daniel did in the book of Daniel. He was too young to be guilty of sin when they got taken into exile. Yet when Daniel got on his knees and prayed the prayer that everybody got mad at him for, what he prayed was, God, we have sinned. We need your forgiveness. So somehow we need to bring it near and just be willing to sit into that and say, God, I'm not separate from the complexities of this. Race is a part of my discipleship journey and story, just like it is for other people. So we're going to stop there and go to Q&A, but the two things, simply, the gospel that race is a necessary part of our gospel conversation because the good news is a light that touches everything in the room. And because of that, it's not a tertiary issue. It's a central concern to my discipleship or faith journey because it has to do with my brothers and sisters that are sharing the space, my neighbor, um, and therefore I necessarily must engage from it and not put up a wall and see it as something I'm distant from. So I'm just going to leave off the prayer and, and go straight to Q&A if that's all right. Um, and maybe we'll hit some of these other topics in there. Or you can, if you want to get to the rowdy stuff, you can grab the book and, and, then, uh, and then read those things in there.
1: Ken, let's start with, uh, yeah, thank you. So you write about white privilege in your book, and in the first service when we mentioned that, the whole room drops, because there's a lot associated with that. Can you walk us through some of the slides with the red lines and, sure. and why, why don't you guys run that and just walk us through some of this.
0: Yeah, so I, I have a slide of redlining. If, if you know the story, the Great Depression in, in uh, the 30s, it was, it was everybody's home was able to be taken from them. A bank could come to you and say, I want the rest of what you owe me, and if you couldn't pay it right then, they would take your home. So what the government did is as part of Roosevelt's kind of fixing that, was they created the Federal Housing Administration and the 30-year mortgage. I mean, we're all familiar with the 30-year mortgage. So now, as long as I can pay my mortgage, the bank cannot take my house from me. So after World War II, with all of this housing boom, new construction, a supercharged kind of economy, uh, we, we had the GI Bill, and we wanted to encourage home ownership uh, with these 30-year loans. But there was a catch to it. Uh, the FHA wasn't going to back loans in high-risk neighborhoods. And so they went through and they color-coded neighborhoods, and some of them were color-coded red. And the definition of red was um, a person of color or an immigrant lives there, which makes it an unstable economic reality, and so we're not going to back 30-year loans there. And so the greatest wealth-building or stabilizing force that, that we have known, starting in the 40s, all the way through up the uh, through up up to the 60s, was racially stilted, disadvantaging people of color or immigrants. It was actually in the code of ethics for a real estate agent that it was a violation of your duty to sell to an immigrant or a person of color into a white neighborhood. And so when we look at cities today and we see Detroit or Chicago or or any of these places, and we wonder how are they so segregated and why are the churches in some sense still so segregated? It's a byproduct of racist policies that we had in place that significantly disadvantaged some. And so in a city like mine... I I have to walk a a primarily white evangelical congregation through the idea that this city isn't just primarily white uh, by accident, but that it was actually shaped to be that way. And so we had what was called, we were a sundowner town, so you can kind of roll through those slides, Um, but you you couldn't be in the town after dark if it was, if you were a person of color. I have a Native American friend who's a mentor to me. He remembers going into the town and seeing a sign that said, no dogs or Indians allowed. And in towns all throughout America and the Midwest, these are the kinds of things that you would see uh, and that ultimately shaped how our cities ended up uh, having the lines and and the geography that they did. Here's the misnomer. We talk about the Great Migration, where 90% of the African-Americans in the South moved out of the south, 90%. And we call it a migration. It's not like the, the weather got better and like birds, they decided to migrate north. Th- these were families and our families that were being terrorized uh, by the Ku Klux Klan and other things and fled as refugees to the north, most of which those cities, the race riots in Detroit and other places, did not receive them or welcome them. And so we have to understand that shared history to go, I can't just look at something today and draw an opinion from it. I have to understand it and understand how that has shaped different communities. The last one is from Oregon. It's a picture of the Ku Klux Klan uh, and the Jesus Save sign. You know, Oregon, the state I'm from for 10 years, had the highest Klan uh, per capita membership in the country. Uh, The founder of the Aryan nation said that Oregon was a perfect state for for Confederate refugees. And so it's it's just more diffuse out there than uh, I think what we realize. And we have to know that history in some sense if we're going to be hopefully the best version of Christians interacting in that space.
1: So when we talk about white privilege, a lot of people take it like uh, we're making a disparaging comment. I was introduced to it from my stepdad, who grew up in a mixed African-American white community, said they all slept over each other's houses, they all played on the sports teams, but at 18 years old, something happened. Uh, All the white kids became contractors or worked for GE or the Daily News, local newspapers, and most of the black kids could not get jobs, which then leads to dads leaving homes because they can't provide. So, so it's just the understanding that we have been privileged and that we need to enter into a conversation. So what it leads to is everybody here is thinking, what do I do? So help us with that.
0: Yeah, just, just to try and put that first comment to bed, Airbnb didn't just redo its discrimination policies because people were discriminating against Anglo-Saxon sounding names as applicants, right? Um, it, was, it was other than that. Uh, people of color are 11 times more likely to get the death penalty from subjective juries or judges. It's, there's a, a reality that goes on that way, and I think we jump into it and go, how do I fix it? Uh, and this is not the kind of thing you write a check for and make a donation um, because a, a village needs a well, which is a great cost. This is something that that is traumatic in our country for a long period of time not just african-american but asian-american we have people in oregon that were were brought up during world war ii to farm had kids that became citizens and at the end of world war ii were then told they needed to go back and it's incredibly complex so there's no fixing it so i think what we say to people is listen um, learn and and then be willing to lament just the sheer enormity of the injustice or, or mess, um, before jumping in and thinking that somehow, some way, I can fix it, I can resolve it, I've got the right idea, you've got the wrong idea, it's just not one of those things that's going to take a blanket answer, right?
1: Ken, last night we had dinner, and I went home after our dinner, and I actually read 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 14, and I was thinking about how the early church had to deal with issues like this, uh, meat offered to idols. There were people that thought they could eat it, those who couldn't. Um, Eating kosher was still a problem in the early church. And there's that phrase that we probably have in context, but we haven't drawn as much out as we can. So we think, okay, if somebody's free to do this, then if I'm stronger, uh, I'll absolve uh, because of the weaker brother. But if you really dig into that, we're, we're to draw the weaker person in. So as Christians now, we can't. Right? We cannot do what the secular culture is doing, which is politicize this. Uh, we got to find a way to get close. Yeah. we gotta, we got to find a way to walk across a racial divide and uh, be the first to say, hey, I want to understand this. So uh, practical steps for people who are going to go back to work on Monday and just, just a few practical steps.
0: I think most people are wanting to be heard um but my dad was in the military. Uh, I was having a wonderful conversation with a former policeman here, um, school teacher, what, pastor, whatever your profession. I think most people are wanting to be heard why they feel so strongly about whatever the position is. And I think we really have to, to flip that around and go maturity, I'm a dad, I've got four daughters. As we mature, we begin to let the other person share where they're at and why and then interact that way instead of always starting with, with our strong opinions. So there are Christian brothers and sisters going to football games, not going to football games, kneeling, standing, whatever it might be, and saying, help me understand this, because I feel very strongly, why are you on this particular side? Um, help me. And what we're going to find is we might not change our view, but we can, we can walk out arm in arm and go, we're Christian brother and sister, and we understand each other, and we can still love each other despite our disagreement. But when we're always trying to jump into the, the Thanksgiving meal where we, where we just kind of trade the political barbs, it doesn't actually move a conversation forward.
1: So one last question. Uh, I love the Bonhoeffer reference. Uh, only know about Bonhoeffer because I read Metaxas's book, but tell everybody his little journey here and what happened in a church in Harlem.
0: Yeah, uh, so Bonhoeffer, most of you probably have heard of the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but he came over to the States and was in Harlem, Abyssinian Baptist Church, African-American church. He began to see in there a group of people in the United States that were being discriminated against and persecuted, and it gave him a lens for what was happening in, in Germany at the time with Jewish people. And he actually took the principles that he learned at Abyssinian Baptist, and it made him more of an advocate when he went back to Germany, he could have stayed and ridden out the war in the States. He decided at the last minute to get on the last boat that ended up going uh, back to Germany before war broke out. And he wrote during, uh, during that period of time, he said, only he who cries for the Jews is permitted to sing Gregorian chant. I mean, think about that. Only he who cries for the Jews is permitted to sing Gregorian chant. And what he was really saying is, if we don't actually have a real love Or understanding or empathy for our brother and sister in need we shouldn't be then worshiping or kind of clamoring to God it's Isaiah 58 true worship isn't in our desire for closeness with God so much as it's in our willingness to sacrifice for people made in the image of God that those things go together